Good morning. The hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral International Development, Multilateral Institutions, and International Economic, Energy, and Environmental Policy, here and after known as the Subcommittee, will come to order. Today's hearing represents our subcommittee's first hearing of the year and the first hearing I've had the honor to chair in the U.S. Senate. I want to thank our ranking member, Senator Merkley, for joining me and leading this subcommittee. I look forward to working with you in a bipartisan manner to provide robust oversight and uh, address the important priorities that are before this subcommittee. The topic for today's hearing is global philanthropy and remittances and international development. We're joined by an impressive array of panelists uh, this morning who will bring a diverse range of valuable perspectives. I'm particularly excited to welcome Dr. Una Osali from Indiana University. Dr. Osali is the Professor of Economics and Director of Research at Indiana University's Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. As she notes in her prepared statement, the Lilly School is the world's first school dedicated solely to the study and teaching of philanthropy. As a Hoosier, I'm very proud of the fact that the Lilly School of Philanthropy sets the international standard in the field of philanthropy research. We're also joined this morning by, by doc, Dr. Daniel Rund, the William Schreier Chair and Director of, on the Project uh, on Prosperity and Development at the Center for Strategic and Inter International Studies. Welcome. Mr. Sam Worthington, the Chief Executive Officer of InterAction, as well as Ms. Samar Aria, the Managing Director for Diaspora and Multicultural Development at the United Nations Children's Fund. I welcome each of you. As I said, the purpose of today's hearing is to better understand the role that philanthropy and remittances play in international development. Much has changed in recent decades. According to the 2016 Index on Philanthropy and Remittances, 84% of all donors' total economic engagement with the developing world is through private financial flows, with only 16% from government aid. While estimates may vary, the point is that corporations, foundations, not-for-profits, houses of worship, universities, families, and individuals play an enormous role in global relief and development efforts. As a result, if we're going to address most effectively the development and humanitarian challenges of our time, we need to understand and facilitate the role of legitimate philanthropy and remittances in international development. That means seeking optimal public-private partnerships, as well as identifying and reducing unnecessary barriers to legitimate philanthropy. I hasten to note that I approach this topic as a strong believer in the U.S. government's investments in diplomacy and development. These investments promote our security, prosperity, and values. Deep cuts to the U.S. government's international affairs budget would be short-sighted, counterproductive, and, and even dangerous, as Senator Durbin and I wrote in a letter last month to the Budget and Appropriations Committees. That letter was signed by 43 United States Senators. For that reason, I see philanthropy and remittances as valuable complements to, not substitutes for, robust U.S. Gov government investment in our international affairs budget. So with those ideas in mind, here are some of the related questions and issues that I'm interested in exploring uh, with our witnesses today. What is the scale and nature of global philanthropy and remittances, and what unique role do they play in international development? 
How can the United States government more effectively partner with the private sector to promote international development? What unnecessary or unwise obstacles to exist to legitimate philanthropy and remittances related to international development? And what can the U.S. government learn from the private sector with respect to innovation in international development, including evidence-based and outcome-based approaches? I'm interested in exploring these and other questions with you today. So without any further delay, I will now like to call on Ranking Member Merkley for his opening remarks. Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'm pleased to be able to call you that in your first official chair role for a, a subcommittee. Congratulations. And it's been a pleasure to, uh, to work with you. And we had a chance to go up to the United Nations together, see a, explore a bit of the conversation about the role that they're playing. And then this exploration, certainly of remittances and private philanthropy, is an important component of, of the committees and this subcommittee's investigation and understanding of international economic development. Across the globe, philanthropy and remittances are helping to lift people out of poverty, combat disease, provide resources necessary for sustainable development, whether it's CARES work to empower women or the Gates Foundation efforts to eradicate malaria. Philanthropic organizations play a key role in alleviating human suffering and building a better future in the world's most vulnerable areas. Remittance, remittances, meanwhile, enable individuals to empower families and communities they left behind to build stronger, better societies. I just had the chance to, to travel with a trip sponsored by CARE in India and in Nepal to see many of these partnerships and to discuss the, the role of the private funding and the public funding, USAID's role, and also remittances. I visited a, a village in Nepal where the majority of men are working in the Middle East, and it creates all kinds of challenges for those left behind, often for extended periods. And I saw the, the role that, that women were starting to adopt in filling the space of planning for the agriculture of the community, planning cooperatives, planning small businesses that they hadn't previously been involved in. And this work was being facilitated through philanthropic uh, work. So without further ado, I look forward to uh, learning from your insights and your organizations and your research today. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our witnesses again. Your full written statements will uh, be included in the record. Uh, I welcome you to summarize your written statements in, in roughly five minutes, please. Uh, know that votes will be called in the course of this hearing. So I don't want anyone to be alarmed. You'll be in very good hands as I vacate this chair and either uh, hand over the gavel to one of my colleagues uh, or, or uh, recess briefly. For opening statements, let's, let's go in the order that I introduced you. Uh, Dr. Osley, welcome. Uh, I only ask that uh, before you get into uh, your formal remarks, um, you introduce your son, who I understand is here with you today. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley and other distinguished members of the subcommittee. Uh, before Okay, he's a junior at uh, Rebuff Jesuit High School, and we're just so proud of uh, Senator Young's work here in the U.S. Senate, and proud to call him a Hoosier Senator, so thank you. It's great to have your son here, and um, thank you for being before the committee. Okay, 
Chairman Young, uh, Ranking Member Merkley, and other distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. It is an honor to appear before you in the company of these distinguished witnesses. I am the Director of Research at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. The school is the world's first school dedicated solely to the study and teaching of philanthropy. Indiana University has been at the vanguard of philanthropy education since the Center on Philanthropy's founding, the school's predecessor, in 1987. The school has recently been entrusted with the honor of researching and producing two leading research reports that provide a detailed picture of the role of global philanthropy, including its impact on international development, and how national and international policies enable or limit such philanthropy. These two indices were founded and produced until recently by the Hudson Institute under the leadership of Dr. Carol Edelman. And the indices are the Index of Global Philanthropy and Remittances and the Index of Philanthropic Freedom. Private philanthropy plays an important role in American economic, social, and civic life serving vulnerable and marginalized groups, providing risk capital for innovation, building communities, and reinforcing a national value that emphasizes individual action in pursuing the public good. However, philanthropy today is increasingly global. Our research allows us to understand, perhaps for the first time, how philanthropic giving is reshaping foreign aid and global development. Today, NGOs, foundations, individuals, corporations, and donors work collaboratively in far-flung corners of the globe alongside official development assistance. Several factors, including technological progress and the rapid pace of communication, make it easier to connect people around the world to address global problems through innovative approaches. To provide some numbers to ground our discussion, charitable contributions from U.S. individuals, estates, foundations, and corporations to U.S.-based international affairs organizations reached approximately $16 billion in 2015. That represented an 18% increase in 2014. This growth outperformed the growth in giving to all other charitable subsectors in 2015. There were more than 6,300 international charities in the U.S. in 2013. That represents about 2% of all reporting public charities. However, the smallest subsector witnessed the largest growth among all subsectors in the number of organizations at 19% between 2003 and 2013. Many of these organizations are new. They've been formed in the last two decades. The revenues and assets of these international affairs public charities increased nearly 50% and 70% respectively between 2003 and 2013. So with all this information, you can see that the global development landscape has changed quite significantly over the past two decades. To understand these changes, we're increasingly looking at the entire landscape of economic engagement with developing countries to further demonstrate the importance of private flows, including private philanthropy in the international arena. The Index of Global Philanthropy reports a measure of economic engagement with the developing world that actually includes official aid, private philanthropy, remittances, and private capital flows. This approach offers a more complete picture 
of a country's total engagement with the developing world and takes into account the critical role that the private sector plays in saving lives in the international development uh, landscape. According to the 2016 Index of Global Philanthropy Report, total government aid from the U.S. and 38 38 other countries included in the report to the developing world was about $147 billion in 2014, while private financial flows of capital investments, remittances, and philanthropy was about $801 billion, more than five times official government aid. To provide more insight here, this includes $513 billion in private capital flows, $224 billion in remittances, and $64 billion in private philanthropy. Private philanthropy alone accounts for 7% of total economic engagement with developing countries. Over the past decade, new forms of philanthropy are coming to light, such as impact investments and crowdfunding. These have led to the private sector to take an increasingly large and visible role in global development. Collaborations between large-scale donors, governments, foundations, NGOs, businesses, social enterprises, and civil society organizations, and others offer possibilities for improving billions of lives. Philanthropy plays a unique role. Both small and large gifts can actually help fuel scientific advances and serve as a catalyst for research in new areas of health, education, the environment, and other key sectors. Philanthropy can also fuel innovation in service delivery and in raising awareness around local and global health issues, including HIV, AIDS, malaria, education, as well as in new areas like female empowerment and the empowerment of young people. The Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, the GAVI, a global Vaccine Alliance provides an example of innovation catalyzed by private philanthropy, with initial funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in this case leading to an effective partnership model of vaccine development, production, and provision to developing countries. Gavi has helped approximately 580 million children in developing countries receive immunization since its founding in 2000. Over 65 million children received immunizations with Gavi-supported vaccines in 2015 alone. Along countless examples, private philanthropy has also led to an increase in agricultural productivity to transform the food systems in many developing nations, to help curb violence in places like Bangalore and India, to reduce meningitis and onchocerciasis as major health problems in sub-Saharan Africa, and to respond quickly after disasters uh, or even to prevent disasters. And finally, to help expand access to quality education for children in remote areas who otherwise would not have access to education. In the US, government policy provides much freedom to allow and promote the growth of philanthropy and the development of a healthy nonprofit sector. The US government has also scaled up new forms of organizations and new ideas in response to social challenges, both domestically and internationally. Globally, while some countries have witnessed an expansion of their nonprofit sector and growth in private philanthropy during recent years, there are also growing concerns about restrictive regulations on both domestic and cross-border philanthropy. 
the 2015 Index of Philanthropic Freedom Report identified three major barriers to philanthropic freedom worldwide. These include, number one, foreign exchange regulations and capital controls, which affect the ability to trade currencies and to move funds in and out of countries. Second, overly broad application of illicit financial flows, IFF legislation, which has imposed onerous reporting requirements on civil society organizations that receive foreign funds. And third, existing and proposed laws in some countries designed to restrict the flow of foreign funds to human rights organizations and watchdog groups. The International Center for Nonprofit Law also identified four common challenges restricting the operation of international development nonprofits globally. These constraints include restrictive legal requirements for the registration and operation of nonprofit organizations, restrictions on foreign funding and affiliations, and overly broad counterterrorism laws and regulations constricting activities that further international development, as well as the lack of trust between governments and nonprofit organizations. The school's ongoing research finds that cross-border philanthropy is subject to stricter oversight in about 20 countries where specific laws and regulations on foreign nonprofits have been passed or proposed since 2015. This increasing level of oversight towards foreign nonprofits has the potential to constrain philanthropic freedom globally and to greatly limit the ability of philanthropy to continue to fuel innovation and provide risk capital to address global challenges. More research is needed on global philanthropy and its role in international development and is crucial to creating awareness among leaders and policymakers about the critical role that philanthropy plays in promoting economic and social development around the world. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. I would be happy and honored to respond to any questions you may have. Thank you. Thanks so much, Doctor. Mr. Rundy. Thank you. I'm Daniel Rundy. I hold the William A. Schreier Chair, and I'm the Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, Ranking Member Merkley distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting me to testify before you today. I've had a significant experience working with governments, the private sector, private philanthropy, and observed closely the phenomenon of remittances in my roles at CSIS, the World Bank Group, and in the Bush administration at USAID. Uh, it's important to understand that financial resource flows from the United States to the developing world have radically changed since the 1960s when 70% of U.S. resources from, uh, came from official foreign aid with 30% from various forms of private actors. Today, less than 10% of our economic engagement is from official foreign aid, and 90% is from these other sources of economic engagement, including philanthropy, remittances, foreign direct investment, local capital market activities, and, 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 other, and other, activ other economic activities. Um, I have three main messages, though, for the subcommittee that I'd like you to take away from my testimony. First, while remittances and private philanthropy suppress official U.S. foreign assistance, Neither can supplant nor replace the specific roles and functions of American official development assistance. Uh, so we should leverage and partner with these additional forces. The growth of these private resources should not be an excuse for the U.S. to take the foot off the foreign assistance gas pedal. Uh, you can't partner if you don't have some resources, some reach, and some expertise. Uh, that leads me to my second point, the wrong kind of merger or consolidation of USAID into the State Department endangers the ability of the U.S. to work in partnership with others. 
I used to run multi-sector partnerships in the Bush administration for AID. I built probably more partnerships than probably anybody in the U.S. government in international development, and I speak from experience. The right kind of merger would elevate and empower the USAID administrator as a deputy secretary of state and a director of foreign assistance who would coordinate and manage all foreign assistance spending that resides in over 15 government agencies. Just as we have a DNI for intelligence, we should have a DNI for our soft power. Finally, this is not your grandparents' developing world. At least 50 countries are on their way to becoming developed countries. In the medium term, these countries will continue to require limited U.S. foreign assistance, but will shift towards a trade and cooperation relationship. Sadly, however, there are 30 or 40 failed and failing states that are the source of America's biggest security problems, including terrorism, large migration flows, trafficking in persons, illegal drugs, gangs, and pandemics. The second category of countries will require a steady mix of U.S. foreign assistance, security, and diplomacy. Do I think the current foreign assistance apparatus is arranged for these challenges? No. Uh, I would highlight Senator Young's proposed legislation for national diplomacy and development strategy. Uh, a reorganization and resource allocation exercise should be done in conjunction with a broader strategic foreign policy and national security review. Do I think we could reduce the foreign aid budget in a gradual way by 10 or 15 percent via top to bottom review of what we're doing? Yes, absolutely. Do I think the current USAID system, the, the aid system needs big fixes? Yes, I do. Um, do I think the answer is folding USAID into state, downgrading the administrator to a virtual undersecretary, merger of all USAID regional bureaus into the regional bureaus at state, having USAID adopt states' generalist hiring foreign policy foreign service hiring procedures, states' procurement procedures, and doing all this while absolutely doing nothing about the 15 other agencies doing development? The answer is no. Um, so let me time, spend some time on the, on the first two points, uh, on the points of philanthropy and remittances in this context. So on remittances, millions of individuals send funds via wire, mobile, and internet connection to supplement income for their families, neighbors, and communities back home. Most remittances go to direct consumption of food, basic education, health, and housing. In 10 years' time, most remittances could be sent via mobile wallets and currencies that are based on the blockchain technology. Uh, at the end of the day, though, remittances hold many countries together through funding basic consumption needs, but on their own cannot transform a society. The other force is philanthropy. Overseas U.S. philanthropy can be categorized as corporate philanthropy, private and family foundations, religious giving, individual donations to NGOs and CSOs, and university scholarships. Um, um, U.S. companies have a stake in the future of uh, developing countries and are much more engaged than they used to be. Private and family foundations take long-term risks that the U.S. government cannot, and they identify new and innovative ideas. Uh, much of the great work in global health in, health in the last 15 years has come about because of a partnership between philanthropy and the U.S. government. There's certainly religious giving. Um, the U.S. government works closely with these organizations. Most philanthropy uh, comes from American individuals who give money to charities, to NGOs, and most development in the U.S. happens in partnerships with these groups. Uh, who often implement U.S. government or partially U.S. government-funded projects. Finally, there's the area of scholarships provided by U.S. universities. One of the best investments the U.S. can collectively make is to train the next generation of decision-makers of developing countries. So in closing, you should consider three things. Do not reduce U.S. foreign aid on the premise that other financing, other private flows are going to fill the gap. That's an absolute mistake. Um, do bring all U.S. foreign assistance under an elevated USAID administrator. So absolutely reorganize, but don't do it in a stupid way. And then finally, do consider major reforms, uh, uh, but carry, them out, carry out the right kind of reforms. 
Um, so neither, I want to leave you one last message. Neither remittances nor philanthropy can replace the role, the expertise, or other functions of official foreign assistance. Though imperfect and absolutely in need of thoughtful reform, American foreign assistance has been an important part of our ability to provide global leadership. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Mr. Rundy. Uh, Mr. Worthington. Thank you, Chairman Young and uh, Ranking Member Merkley. Uh, an elderly donor once told me that the most important thing that she had done in her life was to support programs that changed the lives of children living in some of the world's poorest places. She loved the fact that her money was matched by USAID grant, and by responding to disaster overseas, she joined millions of Americans in giving a helping hand. Uh, Interaction is the largest alliance of US NGOs with some 180 members. These are supported by millions of Americans like the one I've just mentioned. As the largest US NGOs, they raise the vast majority of the $15.4 million in private funding uh, that is committed to the NGO sector. For example, in 2013, Interactions members pledged and then spent $1.8 billion in funding towards a global food security pledge to fight hunger, to build food security, and resilience. Members come from the faith community or a desire to advance human dignity. Assistance provided by the U.S. NGO sector promote change at the grassroots level, a bottom-up change uh, that builds and also improves on restructuring systems and institutions. Through private support, an ongoing presence, and ability to have relationships in these countries, we respond in a flexible and responsible manner. However, despite our capabilities, we need U.S. government leadership. We bring different, all bring different types of capital to the table, some through investments, some through donations, or large grants, still others mitigate risk, or bring in the private sector. All of these are needed. There is a positive symbiotic relationship here. Our privately funded programs are only able to build local capacity and solve local problems at scale when supported by U.S. government leadership. If our country withdraws its leadership role, we'd have to raise significantly larger amounts of private resources, which we think is an impossible scenario due to demographic and giving trends. Without a U.S. government framework and financial support for efforts, U.S. NGOs can't cover gaps and won't have systems to function in. I'd now like to review several points on the U.S. government's way to improve its partnership with private philanthropy represented by the NGOs in the context of a full, robust, and sustained support for international development assistance. The first point is about our relationship. U.S. NGOs occasionally act as a donor. For example, this pledge that I mentioned, this $1.8 billion pledge with the U.S. government, and not solely an implementer of programs. However, USAID has no mechanism to recognize US NGOs as donors and treats them differently than the private sector or foundation. Regulations state that unlike corporate funding, private NGO resources cannot be counted as a match. Currently, USAID systems place NGOs as either a donor or an implementer. You can't be both. This illogical outcome is that the US government does not extensively leverage the private resources of US NGOs. If USAID would like to leverage donations raised by nonprofits, it must seriously explore common objectives through grants and cooperative agreements based on partnerships as opposed to largely dictating the nature of programs and its implementation through contracts. 
USAID should develop a mechanism explicitly set up to leverage the private resources of US NGOs. This would enable USAID and NGOs to co-design programs, allow NGOs to spend resources contributed by AID, and require a match. Some form of revised Global Development Alliance or Global Development Mechanism would make sense, and USAID would have to tie resources to these new mechanisms. My second point is on debanking. In recent years, international financial institutes have instituted stringent controls in response to understandable concerns regarding money laundering and illicit terrorist financing. However, banks are going beyond implementing controls and are implementing de-risking measures that make it difficult for U.S. NGOs to transfer resources across borders, even when we could vouch for the legitimate use of these resources. To address the concerns of debanking and de-risking, bank examiner manuals and training should make evident that responsible NGOs should not be categorized as high risk. My final point is around our partner vetting system. It's a concept that has the unejectable goal of assuring that U.S. foreign dollars do not inadvertently fund terrorists. However, the implementation of this vetting system has been haphazard and imposes substantial security risk on NGOs. An interaction has recently released a report making 19 suggestions on how to address some critical frauds, and some could be enacted by Congress, included in directing state and AID to exempt critical and sensitive humanitarian democracy assistance from this program. Foreign assistance is much more than a gift from the U.S. government. Combined with private philanthropy, it represents the American people choosing collectively to put our base face forward and outstretched hand towards the world. Working together, and when appropriate, we should deepen this U.S. government-U.S. NGO partnership. And I thank you, and I closing remarks, for your support to this response to the four famines that we are potentially facing around the room. Thank you. And thank you, Mr. Worthington. Ms. Aria. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Merkley, and members of the subcommittee, on behalf of nearly one million American supporters of UNICEF USA, thank you for the opportunity to highlight the United Nations Children Fund and the significance of diaspora philanthropy in global development. The role of diasporas in philanthropy and global development cannot be overstated. It is a timely and growing phenomenon that is helping to address significant poverty challenges, particularly in the global south. UNICEF USA is an independent 501c3 nonprofit organization that supports UNICEF's work through fundraising, advocacy, and education in the United States. We receive incredible backing from the American people and work with diverse partners such as corporations, foundations, faith-based communities, individuals, and affected communities. Since its creation in 1946, UNICEF has helped to save more children's lives than any humanitarian organization in the world. UNICEF staff work in 190 countries to help children survive and thrive from early childhood through adolescence. Thanks to the unique public-private partnership that UNICEF receives and support from the U.S. government and the American people, we have seen the number of children dying before the age of five dropping more than half since 1990. We believe that it is possible to end preventable child deaths globally in a generation with continued investment in cost-effective, coordinated interventions for children and mothers. Given UNICEF's presence around the world and its wide range of programming, UNICEF USA has been fortunate to receive the support of diasporas for decades. The United States is home to at least 62 million members of the global diaspora, making it the largest diaspora population in the world. This includes Americans of all backgrounds, from first-generation immigrants to the descendants of migrants. The diaspora experience is not new, nor is it limited to a specific group of people. 
The term diaspora refers to people who are immigrants and their descendants who live outside the country of their birth or ancestry, but maintain effective and material ties to their country of origin. The operative word within diasporas, or the operative phrase, is maintaining effective and material ties. And that's what we look for when we engage with diaspora communities. At UNICEF USA, we understand and value the critical role of diasporas in philanthropy. It exists for these communities on an ongoing basis. They are oftentimes the first responders, donors, and supporters for children and communities in need around the world. U.S.-based diasporas are having a direct impact on global development, and government and organizations are beginning to recognize this, establishing policies and initiatives aimed at partnering with diasporas. For example, the U.S. government has for years and continues to host the International Diaspora Engagement Alliance, the African Diaspora Marketplace, and the Global Diaspora Forum, all initiatives aimed at elevating the role of diasporas in development. For many diasporas, global development is also a personal reality. It directly affects their lives, both here and abroad. As a result, they closely follow the needs of the communities they left behind. And this is especially true, again, for the diasporas from the global south, where systemic poverty persists and access to opportunity, capital, or growth may be limited. Whether it's natural or man-made disasters or systemic development challenges, diasporas are there responding with financial, humanitarian, and social support. As humanitarian crises have become more frequent, reoccurring, and predictable, diasporas have had to become more responsive and prepared to provide philanthropic support during those sudden times of need. This includes fundraising campaigns, delivery of medical materials and supplies, emergency food assistance, humanitarian volunteering, and development initiatives. UNICEF USA believes in partnerships and works with diasporas for disaster response and long-term development. After the 2010 Haiti earthquake, the Haitian diaspora supported UNICEF USA and raised funds for UNICEF's post-earthquake recovery programming. This resulted in over $1 million from the diaspora community, in addition to the total amount that was raised by all of UNICEF USA's supporters. Similarly, when Typhoon Haiyan struck in the Philippines in 2013, UNICEF USA worked with the Filipino diaspora to raise funds and mobilize emergency resources. Over $300,000 was donated in a matter of days from organizations that had readily been providing support. As part of the larger $21 million UNICEF received, we're proud to see this kind of mobilization from communities that are connected. Another diaspora partnership with which UNICEF USA continues to cultivate is with the Somali-American community. The United States is home to one of the largest Somali diaspora populations in the world. These communities remain deeply connected and invested in supporting humanitarian and development initiatives inside Somalia. Of the $1.3 billion that is sent in annual remittances to Somalia every year, it's estimated that approximately $254 million comes from the Somali-American community. When famine struck in Somalia in 2011, it was the remittances from Somali-Americans that served as a major lifeline. UNICEF USA worked directly with the communities to raise awareness and support and we continue to do so now with the current emergency affecting the country. In addition to Somalia, Yemen, Nigeria, and South Sudan are facing extreme crises where famine is looming. Not only does it, is it already existing in parts of South Sudan, but it's threatening the lives of 80 million people across these four countries plus an additional eight. We're talking about a region and a swath from Nigeria to Yemen. And uh, for Somalia, this projected number has increased uh, by 50% in terms of the needs since January. Within the humanitarian development framework, remittances are a significant uh, component of response. While UNICEF does not offer 
offer programming directly related to remittances, we do recognize this form of giving exists, most notably between households for basic necessities, and we expect that diaspora remittances will continue to respond. In its recent Global Philanthropy Report, the Hudson Institute found that diasporas in the United States send over $108 billion in remittances to 175 countries around the world. Given the sheer size and frequency of remittances, recipient countries such as Mexico, India, and the Philippines have adopted national policies designed to incentivize diaspora giving. UNICEF USA is proud to work with diaspora organizations, communities, and individuals, and will continue to deepen our partnerships on behalf of children around the world. We believe all diaspora communities, whether first-generation or multi-generational, are critical stakeholders for global development <coughs> through philanthropy and partnership, and we look forward to working with them and others as we continue to stand up for children everywhere. We thank you for the opportunity to present our work, and we look forward to answering any questions you have. Thank you, Ms. Aria. I'd like to begin uh, this, this Q&A period by first anchoring our conversation in a clear understanding of the facts, many of which were laid out by Dr. Osili in her prepared uh, remarks and, um, and also in, in uh, her testimony here today. So, um, Dr. Osili, in summary fashion, I, I'm going to ask you a few different questions here. Maybe you could give me a minute uh, response uh, on each of them, if possible. First, can you briefly discuss the magnitude of private philanthropy uh, and of all private financial flows uh, to developing countries as compared to official development assistance? I know Mr. Rundy touched on this as well. Thank you, Chairman. Very quickly, the U.S. total engagement with the developing world is estimated at $365 billion. $33 billion, so 9% roughly, is official development assistance. And the rest of that, 91%, consists of private sector involvement, including private capital flows, remittances, and private philanthropy. Private philanthropy is estimated at about $44.5 billion, with the largest of that coming from U.S. NGOs. And, and uh, second, uh, I would say the second largest would be U.S. corporations, and then foundations at $4.5 billion. That's the total engagement with the developing world. Because we're also talking about American households, I'll just give some anchoring statistics there. About under 10% of U.S. households give to international organizations. The average contribution on an annual basis is about $100. That's from our philanthropy panel study. In international disasters, we see a much larger response. As an example, about a third of U.S. households gave to the Asian tsunami in 2004, and the average contributions there were about $100 on average. <coughs> How, is it, how does the United States compare to other OECD countries with respect to um, using a broader measure of development assistance as examined in the index of global philanthropy and remittances? Excellent question. As we can, as all of us perhaps know, when we look at overall official development assistance, just in share numbers, the U.S. leads. But as a share of our GDP, we are ranked much lower, one out of eight, 18th in the sample that is studied in the index. When the broader measure of total engagement is used, the U.S. moves from 18th to 8th. 
So we become one of the top uh, engagers as a fraction of our GDP in terms of our total engagement. And in dollars, we're still at the very top. Uh, this broader measure of total engagement also improves the rankings of several other countries, not just the US. Uh, Germany certainly improves the United Kingdom and many other countries. So the measure of total engagement gives us a much more complete and comprehensive view of all of the ways that the US, both individuals, corporations, foundations, our private sector, as well as our government, are engaging with the developing world. What are the trends over time in private philanthropy for our international development uh, assistance? Excellent question as well, Mr. Chairman. We have seen private philanthropy grow during this period. As an example, between 2000 and 2014, private growth, private sector contributions increased by about 88%. In the same context, official development assistance increased by about 50%. So we're seeing uh, private sector flows increasing much faster than official development assistance in the same time period. To anchor it again, looking at US households, in 2000, we had about 1% of American households giving to international organizations. Today, that's closer to 10% of US households, one out of every 10 contributing to international uh, affairs organizations. So much more engagement in terms of international philanthropy, both with U.S. households, corporations, foundations, the private sector, as well as, as we can see, the community as a whole. Okay, thank you. I, Mr. Rundy, uh, do you have anything to add to uh, the uh, numbers that were just laid out and some of the trend lines we've seen? Just that I, I do think it's important for us to understand the totality of our engagement. It's very important. Um, I do think, though, that uh, I want to just emphasize that other financing is not going to is not going to replace uh, the role of the U.S. government. Um, and I would also add that uh, international development countries that have developed have developed because of good governance and because of a growing formal private sector. So there, these are very important in terms of keeping. It, these are very important flows. But ultimately, it's a function of good governance and a growing formal private sector. If you look at South Korea, if you look at China, if you look at Costa Rica, you look at Chile, you look at Poland, these are all countries that it was good policies and formal private sector. I would also say the following, that these really important forces, and I have built many partnerships, uh, are not going to be able to fill the gap on things like elections monitoring or democracy promotion. I know that something that you care a lot about is the issue of how we're going to deal with famines. Famines don't happen in dictatorships. Well, if we want to have multi-party democracies, that requires the, in, the, net, the National Endowment of Democracy institutions like the International Republican Institute and the National Democratic Institute. Well, there's not necessarily private. They have a very hard time, those institutions, raising money from private philanthropy and certainly not corporate philanthropy. There's no money for that. Um, if we want to work, in, if, if the world is going the way I've described it as, and I submitted for the record a, a report looking at how the developing world is going, I call it a tale of two paths. We have countries going towards wealth, towards development, and we have uh, countries that are failed and failing states. Uh, I would argue that it's, uh, we're going to have to be, we're going to have to put a lot more of our official aid in these failed and failing states. So um, it's, uh, I think it's, these are very important numbers. I, I would also argue, though, that um, I think luckily the international conversation is moving away from should we be spending 0.7% of our official development assistance, but they are interested in what kind of impact we're making and how effective we are. And so I think that's a, that's a good thing. So I do think this, this broader picture is helpful for that as well. Thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Rundy. Uh, for those who, uh, those tens of people who just tuned into uh, C-SPAN 2 um, to watch this subcommittee hearing, um, I, I do think it's important uh, for me to emphasize as well uh, something I said in, in my opening remarks, which is that um, official government assistance is going to continue to play an important role. I would add uh, our, our contributions to multilateral institutions will continue to play an important role. We need to optimize uh, those programs. I think uh, to the extent we can, we can leverage philanthropy, remittances, uh, and uh, even foreign direct investment in creative ways, uh, we, we, we can um, help affect change in, in those areas leading to better outcomes to our diplomacy and development. Dr. Osley, Moving on, uh, U.S. private philanthropy to international causes, uh, you indicated has grown over time. That leads to a natural question, why? Great question once again, Mr. Chairman. This is something that our research has focused a lot on, understanding the whys. There are several reasons for this increasing trend. The first is the improvement in technology and communication, allowing donors in every part of the country in the U.S. today to send a donation to support a cause or even to engage in an issue they care about wherever it is, whether that's in Latin America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Europe, etc. So our improvement in technology has allowed us to reach uh, the far-flung corners of the globe. I think that's one. The second factor that is important is that we live increasingly global lives. People travel, they're exposed to individuals throughout the world. Many of our global companies are working in communities around the world. This also creates an environment where there is an interest in causes around the world. And third, I don't think we can rule out the role that some of our leaders have played in raising awareness around these global issues with Bill and Melinda Gates at the forefront of many health and education issues globally as well as Warren Buffett. Um, I would even add Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan have really raised awareness around the need to invest but also to uh, help improve lives in our backyard but also in communities around the world. So I think we have several factors that have aligned to create this interest in global philanthropy. And of course, uh, many of uh, the products we consume today come from many, the music we listen to, our, our lives are informed by a much more global culture than ever before. Next uh, question will be addressed to all of you, and it's, uh, we're getting down to brass tacks here. So um, what unnecessary or unwise obstacles exist to legitimate philanthropy and remittances related to international development? What, if any, specific steps do you believe we in Congress should take legislatively to address these obstacles? Uh, and um, we'll begin with whomever would like to pipe up. Mr. Worthington. No, thank you for the question, because ultimately the success of global development in this new approach where you have resources flowing from the private sector, from uh, NGOs, individuals, corporations, grants, it, it is a, a much more complex environment. We need tools that allow us to leverage each other. Right now there's a tendency for groups to operate within their lane, U.S. government's looking at its programs, NGOs looking at their programs, how these programs leverage each other so that you're not spending $10 million in one place and $10 million in another, but you have a broader program that's leveraging each other. This requires the ability to co-design programs between the, the private sector NGOs and others. There's a lot of work that has been started in this area, but we could go much, much further. 
Um, the second is that uh, there are the U.S. government has a whole series of rules. In, in many ways, it's easier for the NGO sector to work with corporations and, and engage with uh, foundations and private philanthropy. That that enables us uh, to be more flexible in so many ways. But we know that the, the main energy of global development is coming from the U.S. government. There needs to be mechanisms built around cooperative agreements and grants, there's a tendency of the U.S. government to dictate what it wants and then deliver that and ask for a contractor or contractor-like body to deliver it. That's important in certain circumstances. But if you're a World Vision or a Save the Children or a CARE, you have your own programs. You're looking at some form of entity to partner with you in delivering those programs and bringing in a major corporation as well. That is the change of mindset that is needed uh, to, uh, to do this. And some of these uh, are times where our members are involved in humanitarian disasters and so forth, and you know that to get U.S. government resources, there's a series of vetting requirements that we believe are necessary, but they're being placed on the back of the NGOs. We say, U.S. government, State Department, AID, do your own vetting. Make sure we're working with the right people. But don't put us in a situation where we're having to play that role for you because it harms the trust we have with local populations. So in many ways, it's this shift of mindset. It's a shift of recognizing that we are simply one of many dollars leveraging each other and building the mechanism around doing that. And a push from Congress to have resources that are focused on this type of leveraging would, in essence, have every U.S. dollar going into AID or other places multiplied many times over. Just I'd like to make a point about... Uh, Grants and contracts sure. and cooperative Mr. grants Rundy. have come up. <clears throat> we wrote a report at CSIS that I, I, I want to submit for the record on the U.S. development ecosystem. And we should think about our U.S. development ecosystem of for-profit contractors and nonprofits the way we think about our defense industrial base. We have a defense industrial base, and it's a strategic asset of the United States, and we have a development industrial base, which is a strategic asset of the United States, an important force multiplier of our engagement in the world. That may not necessarily how the development community would think about it, but I think that's an easy way for us to get our brains around why it's important and why we should think about it uh, as, as something that's important. I do think in a world of middle-income countries, I think the use of grants and cooperative agreements is much more likely because in, in a way we're going to be transitioning having and having an assistance relationship with middle-income countries. But I think, sadly, in fragile and failed states, I think there's going to be increasing pressure by U.S. policymakers to have very specific outcomes in fragile and failed states. And I think you're going to see more contracts in that context. Um, but at the same time, I would make one other point, that in, in an environment where there's potentially less foreign assistance money, there's going to be an additional incentive to find other partners to leverage money with. I'll stop there. Thank you all. So I'm going to con continue, and I may be asking some of the same questions that the chair asked since, since I missed his questions. But I wanted to start, uh, Dr. Osili, uh, with a, a question that comes out of your testimony, where you note that illicit financial flow legislation uh, creates significant challenges. And can you expand on that a little bit? And specifically, I... I, I Imagine that the the effort is to avoid or decrease corruption, which can be a devastating impact on development. But if that's maybe that's not the reason, can you give us a, a sense of 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 the point you're making? Thank you. Um, I think the big question is uh, how can we 
enhance or um, I would say optimize the flow of funds to developing countries without imposing overly broad restrictions on flows of funds to legitimate causes. So we've set up very stringent rules for good reasons, to often here in the US and elsewhere, to restrict the flow of funds to terrorism-related causes and other related causes. However, how can we prevent the overly broad application of these laws? And I think in some countries, it's extremely difficult for US-based organizations to send transfers. And it's also very difficult for <coughs> NGOs who are working on human rights, education, disaster relief, to receive those funds from foreign-based sources. So I think this is looking at the legislation in such a way that we can keep the most stringent rules in place to prevent the bad actors, but uh, do not uh, restrict these um, flows in cases where we can identify that they're flowing to legitimate me um, organizations, causes, and to help support development objectives. So right now, it's almost one size fits all in terms of the policies that we have in place. And it would be, I think, optimal to look at these on a country by country basis and find out if there are ways to provide more ease and transparency in the application of these rules so that it's not a one uh, one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, th thank you. I know that Mercy Corps in, in its work in uh, Turkey, for example, to uh, fund support for 350,000 refugees in, in Syria. One of the things that the Turkish government uh, has challenged them on is, is whether they have receipts to document every transaction. But they're doing a lot of purchases in, in markets where receipts are not part of the everyday function of, of, of life. Uh, and. Um, is, is that one of the examples of onerous reporting that you're referring to? Or? Yes, and actually in our report, and I think that can be available for you to review, we look at this on a country-by-country -country basis and flag the countries where these reporting requirements are so burdensome that uh, NGOs end up spending a lot of time on reporting requirements and obviously at some cost to the actual work that they need to do in disaster relief, education, human rights, and so forth. Um, I know that my colleague here on the panel may also have some specific examples. The report actually outlines countries where this is an impediment or a constraint to the flow of funds for development activities. And how much of that is U.S. requirements versus foreign government requirements? I think we have both. Certainly the foreign requirements are there and many of them are, uh, many of those countries are pronounced in the report and, and called out. In the US, we also have some requirements that do impede flows to some countries for good reasons. And I think it's really thinking about where we can have exemptions around humanitarian relief and disaster relief and also for development objectives. Yes, and please go ahead, Mr. Worthington. No, just to, to build on this, it's a, an issue of risk. Banks are looking at transferring resources. They're transferring trillions of dollars around the world. They're taking resources from Mercy Corps care. They're moving them from here to the US to uh, refugee camps around Syria or programs in, in complex environments. Each transfer has to be justified where it's going, what it's being used for. And this could be money coming from the State Department, AID, or private resources. When they look at the flow of these resources, a bank is going, there's a high risk associated with resources going into dangerous places. And there's a tendency then to put more regulation, more caution on the movement of these resources beyond the rules that exist in the Treasury Department because they fear finding themselves in an environment where inadvertently some resources are badly transferred. 
Um, as a result, you had this sort of movement towards de-risking where banks are pulling back from moving legitimate resources, including resources through the UN, paying staff of US embassies, um, other places where they fear there's a greater risk associated with this. We've come back with Treasury and the banking system and said, can, these are legitimate institutions with deeply established systems. Can we create mechanisms to address these concerns? Because right now, with no wrongdoing and no problems found around this, we are being, uh, in essence, de-risked out of this where some institutions are completely unable to transfer resources. What the diaspora community then does is moves it by cash, legally across borders. And this, from security professionals, is, is the wrong way to move resources out of this country to help people. We need those resources to flow through the banking system, but through, through legitimate organizations that are then able to deliver programs. So when you're talking about the diaspora community, you're talking about remittances. Remittances would be an example, but it's, it's even organizations beyond remittances that are looking to deliver programs. If you can't bank from one place to the other, people will move uh, the money through cash. So I'm imagining when you're talking about this, you're, you're, you're talking about a, a bank that says, we have to know more about the recipient before we're willing to make the transfer. Is that the main no, they, that is just normal business. They will come back. Okay. We need to know more about the recipient. We'll check it against anti-terror lists and so forth. That's just normal business. This is when they say, actually, a whole region, it's just too, too tricky to work with NGOs that are uh, dealing with famine in Somalia and in potentially al-Shabaab areas. We negotiate with Treasury and what access we have uh, because we are, unfortunately, in the most dangerous places on Earth. What, how we move resources to those areas, banks want to be assured that they're not going to be in a situation where they're said that they've somehow transferred resources at some degree of risk. So it's very difficult to get resources in. You mentioned Mercy Corps. They're moving 700 tons of wheat into northern Syria and programs in northern Syria. That has to be accounted for. This is U.S. government money. Um, the challenge is the banks don't like moving money in this and if I could just add to that, on this example of the cash that's sent from diasporas, we learned in 2011, at the height of that famine in Somalia, the Somali-American communities that were sending money were overwhelmingly sending it through informal networks. And for those that were using the banks, found themselves under uh, significant scrutiny. Um, it's, this is why we have a, a targeted focus on diaspora philanthropy at UNICEF USA, so that we can help the diasporas continue to send the, the, the support that they're sending, but through formal, transparent, and accountable um, uh, mechanisms that we provide. And you know what we're seeing now is another impending crisis in Somalia and many other countries, Yemen, uh, Nigeria, and South Sudan, and across the whole swath. Um, and this means that more diasporas are going to want to send money, but because of their proclivity to send it through informal networks, it may not actually be able to reach those most in need. So for organizations that are on the ground, that are operating, uh, providing the immediate assistance and long-term support, um, it's critical that we have more mechanisms where diasporas can uh, send their, fun their, their support, their financial support to organizations they trust. We find our experience at UNICEF is that uh, American uh, diaspora communities are very familiar with the organization. There's a trust factor there. There's a familiarity with the programs. And, and at this particular time, we'd hate to see another emergency uh, uh, grow in the way that it is and, and the support that is ongoing to suddenly be stopped as, as it happened in 2011. Uh, 
already Somalia's uh, projected needs have shot up. Uh, we see a projected number of children who are or will be acutely malnourished, uh, reaching 1.4 million this year, um, including 275,000 that will suffer life-threatening acute malnutrition. What we know also about severely malnourished children is they're nine times more likely to die than a healthy child. And so these communities that want to respond to that emergency, we, we need them to know that it is possible to send their funds through trusted networks, through transparent networks. And at UNICEF, we are actively working with organizations over the years. Um, and, and so we're ringing the alarm, particularly to those communities as well. Well, you mentioned informal networks, and we've heard that one of the informal strategies is to move cash with people who are traveling back. But are we also seeing a significant movement to things such as uh, Bitcoin? We haven't had any re uh, experience doing the Bitcoin-related uh, work, but certainly the use of mobile has allowed for more trans transmissions of remittances. There's a uh, platforms such as Impesa. There are um, other companies that are exploring the Bitcoin experience, but overwhelmingly, remittances are sent through informal channels. It's either through a, a career or a person that is trusted, or it's sent through the uh, merchant service banks that have been operating and providing remittance sending. Uh, services for years. Okay, I want to turn to a, a different question. And as I as I came in, uh, I believe that uh, Mr. Worthington, you were talking about the the vetting issue, and I know that this has been a, a a big deal. I thought we did a provision in the appropriations bill, some guidance that uh, I was involved in to try to protect the NGOs from this role. Where do we stand right now? First, thank you very much for this provision. I think uh, the, the Senate has been a, a key, uh, a providing key guidance in this area. Um, the first bit is that the USAID has, uh, and the State Department are finishing a pilot. Uh, we have found that that pilot was sort of haphazardly applied to certain places, uh, some organizations, not others. Um, and uh, in looking at the organizations involved in those pilot countries, we came up with a series of, of recommendations. I think the, the core uh, disagreement we have with USAID on, on this one is not around vetting. Vetting has to happen and there has to be appropriate vetting of partners. It is asking the NGOs to do the vetting because we are set up in a relationship where we need this trusted relationship with a local partner. We could point them to AID, they could get the information, the dynamics of that, that information into a vetting system. But the moment we are asked to provide that information, we are perceived as an extension of the U.S. government, and as a result, you know, staff could get, potentially get killed and so forth. In fact, a large number of major U.S. NGOs in Afghanistan stopped taking money from USAID because of the vetting requirement. Now, so, this, so I think there's a, this philosophical issue of, and the feedback from the U.S. government AID is one this is of cost. So let's continue the conversation uh, beyond this hearing so that we can, as we have the coming appropriations period, I thought we had largely fended off the, uh, the challenge or the, the problem, but it's sounding like uh, we have more work to do there, in sir. that regard. Well, I, I gather that uh, the conversation has continued. It's been uh, very informative with respect to uh, some of the barriers to uh, philanthropic giving that uh, furthers international development goals. I'd only add, uh, as we move on to other lines of questioning, that if you have specific legislative proposals uh, that you'd like to submit to this subcommittee, uh, I would certainly welcome those. 
uh, submit those uh, uh, for the record um, after the hearing uh, that would uh, be most helpful to us. Moving on, how can the United States government more effectively partner with the private sector to promote international development? Mr. Rundy, in your prepared remarks, uh, you note that the U.S. government has partnered with private sources of finance for many years, but you suggest we could do more. Could you expound on that, sir? Thank you. Um, so I used to run and I helped grow USAID's Global Development Alliance Initiative. Uh, it's, it's their initiative to work more closely with philanthropy and, uh, and the private sector and other, other these forces we've been talking about. Uh, it was started by foreign service officers and quickly adopted by then Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell and then Administrator of USAID Andrew Natsios. Uh, I recently wrote a report a couple of years ago. I submitted it for the record um, looking at um, USAID's partnership opportunities. Uh, and we also, uh, I also co-directed a bipartisan commission looking at the role of the private sector in development in 2013 that I've also submitted for the record about this very important issue. Um, in a world of less resources, in a world where, we are, where official assistance is a catalyst, then partnerships should be a starting point for almost any problem-solving exercise by the U.S. government. Uh, we should, but we should not be doing partnerships for partnerships' sake. Um, there are going to be some issues where we're going to have to go it alone. Um, there are going to be few hands going up to work on improving tax system strengthening or rule of law training. Uh, there's certainly a role for the private sector or philanthropy in these sorts, in these sorts of issues, but they're really secondary roles. Um, but for, it, for the U.S. to partner, it has to have some resources, it has to have some expertise, it has to have some reach. And so if we cut the foreign assistance budget willy-nilly or we break our ability to do development by doing a, a poorly thought-out uh, uh, merger, uh, we're not going to have the ability to work in partnership with others, and I, I speak from experience saying that. Um, so I worry that reorg decisions and budget decisions will break our ability to partner. Um, the, we do also, though, our systems and our people and a mindset of official assistance needs to move away, not just in the U.S. system, but also in the multilateral development banks, move away from a mindset that we are the largest wallet in the room and move to a mindset where we're the most catalytic wallet in the room. Stop there. So in addition to budget decisions, uh, are there other uh, things that Congress can be doing uh, to encourage these sorts of partnerships. Oh, I'm so glad you raised that. And That'd be great, Senator. Thank you. Um, I think one with of the understanding that uh, there's probably a fulsome explication of some of these ideas yes. in yeah. what you've. Uh, no, no. I, I, I actually was yeah. going in a different direction, sir. I, I would okay. suggest that um, I think it would be most important for the full Senate Foreign Relations Committee to hold a hearing on this proposed merger between AID and the State Department. I'm very concerned. And I think this is, uh, I think our ability to work with these other forces is going to be very negatively impacted by, by, the, mer by the rumored merger. Um, I think I'm very much in favor of reform. I'm very much in favor of strengthening assistance. But I, I'm concerned that um, this is a problem. I think there's been some very helpful language put in by the Senate asking questions. I don't know if Senator Graham put them in or not. Uh, most recently, I guess, in the, in the continuing resolution, asking about reform and asking, and asking hard questions about this budget. So I think... Um, I think it's going to be very important that the, the Senate and the House uh, play important roles. And, and also, f and I think, I do also think when we think about foreign assistance and we need so to be thinking about if it. if I could interject, your, your point is, uh, if, if I could perhaps restate it, we're the authorizing committee for um, the uh, State Department yep. of the United States, uh, for USAID, 
and uh, as, as we contemplate perhaps uh, the most revolutionary restructuring of uh, both of those entities in generations, um, it is your opinion that we should hold full public hearings uh, about these restructurings, the implications uh, and, uh, of any proposed restructurings, the rationale behind them, the resources needed, uh, uh, the objectives as we move into uh, a, a, a new sort of global environment, the objectives of those entities, and all sorts of other related matters. Is, 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 that, um, is that your opinion? Yes, sir. sir. Okay. Yes, uh, Mr. Worthington. No, just, just to build on this, in many ways we focus on the budget, how much money there is to do these things. But from the perspective of the NGO sector, it is the framework and the skill set that we have through the U.S. government. is having diplomats in a diplomatic lane creating space for us to operate in difficult environments where we could call on the State Department. It's having experts within USAID who are able to uh, both catalyze other resources and bring them together. It's these three sort of forces coming together. When we have the private sector coming in, the NGO sector coming in, and USAID, we get sort of the perfect tripartite relationship and types of programs that, to me, are the programs of the 21st century. They all need a diplomatic space to function, particularly in fragile and conflict environments. The more you pull USAID and the State Department together, the more you're blurring skill sets, and our fear is, is that a lot of the skill sets that have been developed by development professionals in USAID will be lost, and in many ways the goals become more short-term. You're trying to achieve a diplomatic goal in the three, four-year period. Development is happening and having impacts over a five, 10, 15-year period. If you foreshorten those goals and you say, we want to impact, I remember an ambassador calling me on Pakistan, we want to impact you know, 53 million people in Pakistan and doing it in two years so that they have a positive image in the United States, my answer was, it's a lofty goal, but add a zero to this. This is a long-term effort of trying to make <coughs> human change and cannot be exactly commingled with the goals of the State Department. They could be aligned, but you need two separate functioning systems to make them work. Any other thoughts on, on what role Congress should play in facilitating, uh, catalyzing these types of partnerships between private, that is, non-governmental entities uh, and state USAID and furtherance of our, our development and diplomatic uh, objectives? So breaking this into, into, yeah. into two parts. The first is AID has tended to focus on public-private partnerships with the private sector, which makes sense because they're getting new resources in. They have not tended to focus on public-private partnerships with the private sector and the NGO sector in, in pulling multiple actors in. There's actually more resources to do it that way. Uh, some of these new mechanisms, the Global Development Alliance, the Global Development Lab, and so forth, are, are, are exist, but they are woefully under-resourced, and most resources go through traditional means. So if you move more resources, let's say we had a far more leveraging. And then we would encourage uh, the calling of hearings to look at any consolidation between AID and state. Where are you dismantling capacity that already exists? And where are you actually getting rid of some redundancies that need to be taken care of? Are, th are there instances in which um, state or USAID, uh, probably in most cases USAID, should, should not partner with international NGOs, with, with NGOs uh, more yeah. generally? And, and, and uh, if your answer 
is those instances are very limited. I would envision a protocol of sorts where you, you'd ask a series of questions. Uh, I have a military background. Uh, we would checklist almost everything. So you, before you decide to spend a dollar of taxpayer money, you ought to ask, um, you know, are there NGOs uh, that uh, we might consider? Do they have sufficient resources? Are their objectives are aligned with our own? Uh, do they have the capacity uh, in a, uh, to, to actually implement the sorts of services? Uh, these may not be the right questions, but it gives you some sense of the protocols that might be institutionalized if they're not already in the departments. Maybe you could speak to this? I mean, there are, there are clear places where uh, the AID or State Department need to work government to government. There are clear places. Uh, for me, it sort of use the expertise of your lane. We talked with, uh, you know, AFRICOM. There are places where you're looking at the role that uh, AFRICOM is playing in training of police and so forth. We need the security lanes to be functioning to be able to operate. So we fully recognize these different roles that the U.S. government can play, and we need uh, a, a, a coordination of some of the diplomatic norms to allow us to function. Many countries are restricting the ability of U.S. NGOs to actually have a footprint in countries. We're being squeezed out uh, because it's easier for them to say, let's run the resources through us as the government. We will manage our own resources. Our point often is, is there is a population that is underserved or you are part of the problem in a conflict environment and we have direct access. So I think it really does come to this question of doing an assessment. And I go to uh, my friend... Dan Rundy's comments, it, it is about uh, the, the leveraging of multiple resources from multiple places. And AID tends to look at things as if they have the, big, the, multi, the most dollars in the room. Instead of stepping back saying, who else is investing in this? Where are those resources coming from? And how can we bring those resources together to achieve a common aim that's bigger than if we designed our own program to do something? And that is a significant mindset shift. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Well, continuing to explore this question of how we can restructure state and AID and the proposal to submerge it. Uh, Director Rundy, the, I believe the current language in the law is that uh, AID will be set up as an entity, which uh, I'm, I'm told means that, that essentially the administration could act without congressional action because of the lack of crispness in defining what an entity is. An entity could be a subsection of state. But I think the general point that I'm hearing, and I think I heard this from you, Mr. Worthington, if I uh, understand your point, is that creating a short-term diplomatic objective behind USID is different than an international economic development motivation behind international aid, and that that is where the concern, primary concern comes from. As, as you're all presenting on this, I was thinking about uh, a, a trip I took to look at projects, aid projects in uh, uh, Africa a year and a half ago, and the, we saw China building prestige projects uh, in Ethiopia, they had built the headquarters for the Pan-African Union or something of that name. African Union. What was the name? African Union. African Union. And uh, I believe in Gabon, it was a big soccer stadium. And, and everybody knows the Chinese did it, yes. right? They yes. all know. All the taxi drivers will point to say the Chinese did it. That's right. I think in Senegal, it was a big uh, uh, road that had been built through uh, the middle of Dakar. And um, one of the, th the things that 
uh, we were looking at. We were looking at our aid projects that were helping a little bit of microenterprise over here to empower women, uh, uh, maternity care over here, uh, addressing uh, drought or starvation over here. And um, the, the question was, there's always been a some diplomatic element to our international aid, but, but it was just kind of a recognition that most of the things we do don't embed a recognition that the United States is, is behind this. And I just thought, you know, as, as some other foreign powers are increasing their foreign presence and their leverage, uh, if, if any insights on this general point. If, if I may, um, this is not your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, freer. Uh, developing countries have more options. They don't have to work with the United States. They can take their business down the street to China. And so we can cut the budget, we can pull back, but in, these societies are in the process of looking for partners. And so if we're not going to be there for them, they're going to take their business to China. I was in China last week. I met with the chair of the China Exim Bank, which is the largest financier. It's far larger than the World Bank now at this point. Some of the largest infrastructure projects in Africa. We can choose. We, uh, leadership is a choice. And our, our, one form of our leadership is our soft power. It is a very important part of our power, uh, whether we're confronting radical extremist terrorists, whether extreme, uh, confronting pandemics, but also uh, there's, but there's a competition out there uh, of competing narratives. And so we can choose. We can step back, but that doesn't mean they're going to – these countries are helpless. They have other options. I want to make two other points uh, to your point, Senator Merkley. One is that there are two cultures. There is a, there's a, there's a military, sorry, three professions. There's a military profession that's recognized. There's a diplomacy profession that's recognized. And then somewhat reluctantly, less so, there's been a, uh, uh, there's a development profession. There, there are schools of international development. There are fo people who focus on international development economics. Um, but I think there's been some reluctance in the, in the U.S., uh, foreign policy system to fully recognize that. We need to recognize if we're going to do a, some sort of a reorganization to understand one of the principles is that that development is a full-on profession and these sorts of things have a longer timeline. It, the Green Revolution took 20 years. The sort of bending of the curve that you're seeing on HIV, AIDS, and malaria, that's been a 15-year project. The bending of the curve in Plan Colombia, beating the bad guys in Colombia, that took 15 years. That was development, that was diplomacy, and that was the military all working together. That's a 15-year project. That's not a three-year project. So we have to think differently about how we align our human resources, how we contract our work, uh, and that's different than a diplomacy timeline. Diplomacy timelines are in weeks or in months. Um, so finally, I'd add one other thing, which is if we're going to reorganize, we should certainly make the AID administrator explicitly a deputy secretary. On the books, the person's a deputy secretary, but oftentimes the State Department won't recognize that it's a deputy secretary. Why? Because undersecretaries and assistant secretaries of the State Department uh, want to lead delegations, and if they recognize that the aid administrator is the deputy, uh, a deputy secretary equivalent, they don't get to lead the delegations. It sounds like a silly diplomatic thing to me, but I think that's truly what's going on. Second, um, we have 15 government agencies doing different forms of development. That's crazy. President Kennedy, when he put together the Foreign Assistance Act in 1961, said we have too many agencies doing development work. It was four agencies then. We now have 15. This is, this is nuts. So I, I want to uh, uh, have that be a point that, that sits with us, because you, in your in original testimony, you said you 
one thing we should do is bring all the foreign aid under a single administrator. Yeah. Now, you're talking about the economic development aid, I'm assuming not, not the military aid and, and so forth. Yes, sir. I'm talking about things that the Department of Agriculture does, the Department of Labor does. Um, there are a series of specialized agencies, some of which do very important work. I was appalled to see that they were going to zero out OPIC and the Trade and Development Agency. The Trade and Development Agency is an agency tailor-made for the Trump administration. All the money stays in the United States. It's about construction and building by American, by American, hire American. It's a great agency, and it leverages money at 87 times what we put in, and it's all sorts of industries that that would be very appealing to many people in the United States outside of the Beltway. Well, I think you're referring to uh, an item in the skinny budget, uh, and um, that's just a starting point for discussion. Uh, so we're, we're relying on on, on the on the uh, the legislative branch to uh, to deliberate. Well, we appreciate you making your points, and I I will want to follow up. I'll, I'll have significant interest in this uh, question of 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 how we consolidate our foreign aid administration. And I realize that the world of agriculture has their own stake in this, and so on and so forth. But surely uh, 15 is too many. But let's let's have further discussion of that. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. I want to turn to what uh, the United States might learn from the private sector with respect to um, innovation in international development, including evidence-based outcomes and, and outcome-based approaches. Anyone can answer this. I think I can take that question and, and also circle back with uh, Senator Merkley's question about our footprint. Um, in terms of innovation, I think diaspora philanthropy, diasporas and development is an innovative space. And to the point about U.S. foreign assistance or U.S. Uh, engagement on this question, you know, the work of the Global Lab, there is a commitment to frontier partnerships, which includes diaspora partnerships as well as financial inclusion. Um, that's exploring how we can advance development objectives globally through more innovative, inclusive, and diverse ways. Um, examples include um, the U.S. I worked on a project before uh, joining UNICEF where USAID was looking at Bangladeshi American communities and their contributions to Bangladesh as American taxpayers. What would they be willing to do? And in this study, we saw that, one, there are already many NGOs that are either diaspora-led or with significant Bangladeshi American uh, size that are providing direct programming and operations and activities. But two, there's also a space of innovation where as Americans, we are actually contributing to the brand of the United States as well as a global leader through innovations you know, YouTube, one of the three founders is a Bangladeshi American. And what the significance of that in terms of a footprint for a country like Bangladesh is huge. And so in my time in Dhaka, uh, people were speaking at, uh, at length about what Bangladeshis in the United States have done and are doing. The same can be said for countries throughout Africa, where Africa has the fastest growing population in the world. We're looking at um, a population doubling to 2.1 billion by 2040. And that also means that Africans abroad are not only sending remittances, but they're looking at how they can alleviate that massive growth, that massive impending growth. So with China, the, the, the examples you've included are, are significant. But what's also very significant about China's role is that China sends its laborers to do these projects. That footprint is the face. So with diasporas and development, what, what uh, entities like USAID, what UNICEF USA is doing, we're looking at how do we export the diaspora contribution and highlight it as an American contribution. This includes hiring practices, diversity and development. It includes expats of significant origin. I spent 10 years working abroad as an Eritrean American, um, and that had significant 
reach as, as an American, as a person of Eritrean origin, it really opened the doors and set a put, footprint. The last thing I'll say is in terms of innovation is philanthropy is, is about uh, foreign aid. It's about the cash and the dollars that are being spent. But philanthropy, especially for diasporas, it is their time, talent, and treasure. This means volunteering. This means the face of America. This means embracing it and putting it out there as something to be proud of. So uh, with UNICEF, what we're seeing is that the, many of the countries we work in, not only are the local staff, the, not only are the staff of our um, country offices predominantly national, nationally led, but also we see the contributions coming from the United States in an unprecedented way, and there's a significant chunk of, of innovation that we, we are exploring of how to um, export and strengthen the, the influence and the impact that diasporas are having. I would encourage um, uh, the, the subcommittee to look at USAID, USAID's work with diasporas. Um, there's also the uh, Global Partnerships Office and State Department, which are exploring the innovation of, of how the contributions are being made. On the issue of innovation, uh, Mr. Worthington. USAID has started to move into the space of the Global Development Lab uh, that they've created to start uh, innovation. I mean, I'll use it in a sort of extreme example of innovation uh, with the U.S. government. I was in about a year ago in the Gaza Strip uh, uh, visiting a program called Gaza Geeks, which was a partnership between Google uh, and Mercy Corps, uh, identifying uh, uh, parts of the population in Gaza that wanted to uh, focus around innovation and social services within the, the broader community. Um, it, they were probably the most moderate group that existed in the place. Part of innovation with private resources is the willingness to fail, the willingness to set up a lab that tries something that doesn't work, that measures it, that then comes back, and so forth. Most of the major NGOs have set up these labs that are focusing on what is and isn't working, and most of these innovations are in partnership with major U.S. corporations. So it's creating a different mechanism of not just delivering a service, but testing different ways of delivering that service. The Global Development Lab has created a whole slew of innovations that are coming out there. I think the challenge they have is to then take those innovations and bring them to scale. There's no shortage of small-scale innovations in the development space. What is missing is the willingness of the U.S. government to then say, okay, these innovations seem to be working. Let's drop these other things. Let's move on these and move them to scale, and you will then achieve things that you can't at this point. I think uh, one other area, I'm glad you brought up testing, because that's one place where I think private philanthropy can really help accelerate development. So just to put this in a broader framework, when we think about philanthropy, we're thinking about private action for the public good. That includes time, talent, and treasure. But one new area that I think philanthropy has provided a, a whole new way of doing business and development is around measurement and evaluation with introduction of RCT uh, trials from everything ranging from mosquito bed nets to uh, deworming medicine. We have countless examples today of what works and what doesn't work on a small scale, certainly, but then increasingly on a larger scale. I think we have examples today of things that work, and the challenge is how do we bring that research, that body of work together in a cohesive way. As a researcher, I think there is a need for much more of a, I would say almost an effort to bring together these best examples, whether it's in health, in education, in disaster relief, so that practitioners across the sector can learn from them. So Dr. Osley, uh, we just passed some legislation uh, that uh, I introduced related to 
we call it a what works clearinghouse yes. in the area of, of uh, our own domestic poverty challenges mm -hmm. and other social pathologies. And uh, it's designed to do exactly that, serve as, as um, a collection bin, a repository for best practices, and others can tap into it. Would something like that be helpful to your mind? And absolutely, and there are examples. Okay. There are examples of those types of initiatives in the development space already, okay. where you can yeah. click on an organization and see to what extent they have evidence-based practices, what works, what doesn't work. And I think the next stage is how to broadly disseminate this work. And I think there, our development agencies can be uh, good partners. Uh, I guess one other point that I would mention around uh, Senator Merkley's bigger point about China is that what we see also, another point that I should mention, is how local philanthropists can partner with USAID and other, other big donors. And an example there would be in agriculture, where we saw the Gates Foundation take the lead with AGRA and USAID, but increasingly that program is being funded by African philanthropists and local donors. So the other big question is, in terms of partnerships, how do we start to build sustainability uh, down the road with some programs? Senator, I think uh, learning and solutions cross borders, and I think there is an opportunity for the sort of clearinghouse that you suggested that we do here in the United States, or if you've enacted, that there's a lot of learning across borders. There's a lot of things around microfinance, or the sorts of work that's been done on demobilizing soldiers that may have some applicability in this country as well. So the learning goes both ways. So I really appreciate your uh, leadership on that, and I think that's something that we could also be looked at in, in the international development sphere as well. Um, if I could make a couple of the points about innovation, if I might, sir. Um, the issue of innovation, I do think the Global Development Lab has been very important. One of the most important roles for private foundations, private and family foundations, we, we need to remember that if you look at Dr. Osley's data, about $4 billion a year is spent on international development activity by organizations like the Gates Foundation, and about $30 billion is spent by official development assistance. But what's special about private and family foundations is that um, they are willing to take bigger risks that other organizations like governments sometimes aren't able to take. And they also have the ability to take a longer view. They can focus on a problem for 10 or 20 years. That's why we had the Green Revolution, which saved hundreds of millions of people in South Asia in the 1960s. It's because the Ford Foundation, in partnership with USAID, spent 20 years working on uh, increased agricultural productivity. Before I turn it over to Senator Merkley, I'll just, uh, for everyone's edification, um, the Global Development Lab, according to USAID's website, uh, serves as an innovation hub, uh, taking smart risk to test new ideas and partner with the agency and other actors to harness the power of innovative tools and approaches that accelerate development impact. Uh, so we can perhaps t talk more about that uh, in a moment. So I wanted to go back to the um, uh, issue related to the partner vetting system. And the, the language that we had asked to be included, and I thought it was included, but I'm trying to ch have that checked right now, was that in establishing a system, the committee requires the preservation of important and sensitive relationships with grantees and contractors. Now, is this the, the, the partner vetting system, was that the effort to get the nonprofits to do the vetting, or was that the effort for the State Department to have a system that bypassed the nonprofits? So uh, this is 
one system, and then the question is who is implementing that system? So the, the general frame of having the State Department and AID ideally have a common system uh, that assesses who and where resources are spent and whether those individuals are vetted. Uh, so let, let me put the question differently then. Under the PVS pilot, is it the nonprofits that are being required to do this, or is it the State Department or, or USAID doing it directly? So in, in the PVS pilot, uh, AID chose not to do direct vetting themselves. They chose to have the vetting be done through nonprofits, and that's been our main complaint of the pilot. We, we've asked them to test in certain environments what we call direct vetting, where they set up a portal. We have a partner of us go to that partner, portal, enter the data, have that data reviewed by the U.S. government against terrorists and so forth. Uh, that mechanism can and should be tested. At this point in time, uh, they've deemed that it's better to simply use the system uh, and have nonprofits themselves uh, do this. And as a result, a number of nonprofits have chosen not to work with the U.S. government, so we, we end up with a, a, a sort of uh, not complete uh, pilot. Okay. And I noticed uh, in the additional paragraph that we had proposed, and uh, again that I thought had been included, but as I mentioned, we're checking on that, uh, was that the USAID and Department of State shall make a direct vetting option available in the five pilot countries and in Afghanistan, and it makes reference to the risk uh, to organizations and in individuals who may be targeted for retaliation if they had to do the targeting themselves. Anyway, so this has been a topic of conversation, I guess, in the Appropriations Committee, uh, and uh, I'll want to continue to raise this issue and work with you all as, based on what we've learned since the, the last time uh, we had this conversation a year ago, to see if we need to do additional work on that. Thank you, Senator. I wanted to uh, turn uh, back, Dr. Osali, in your uh, testimony, I think if I had the numbers right, 16 billion was from American citizens to international organizations yes. out of a total from U.S. citizens of 373 billion, so somewhere below 5% or one out of $20 to international organizations. But then you mentioned that this was the fastest growing category, and I thought, hmm, many reasons that it might be growing quickly, so I just ask you, one is uh, uh, more expatriates sending money back uh, through international aid organizations. Another might be a response to international events where there's a lot of troubled terrain around the world and a lot of reason for just general citizens to be sending funds to assist in, in this part of the world or that part of the world. But what is, what is driving the uh, increase in donations to international organizations? And if, if, that goes, if there's a little picture we can paint of, of how American citizens are responding. Let me clarify, in terms of the 16 billion, this is what U.S. households are sending to international organizations based here in the U.S. So that would not include uh, transfers to organizations outside okay. the U.S. or uh, family transfers and so forth. In terms of what's explaining the growth in the international affairs subsector, that's compared to, say, giving to religious organizations, giving to education, giving to health. So that's the benchmark. It's the fastest growing in that charitable uh, nonprofit sector space. Uh, in terms of understanding what's driving this, you're actually right on. Um, 
your answers are very close to what we've seen in the research. Number one, increased communication and technology, which allow people to, one, learn about causes around the world, whether that's a natural disaster or humanitarian crisis in any part of the globe. Americans can learn about them, can investigate and do their research, and can, from the comfort of their own homes, click on a mouse or from their mobile phones, make a donation. These kinds of uh, possibilities simply were not available 10 years ago, 20 years ago. The ease of being able to give. And then we also, so that you would think about is more on the household side of things. The second factor is one that you alluded to, the ties that we all have that are increasingly global, whether those are family members living abroad, travel abroad, time spent abroad, uh, work uh, abroad. Our lives are increasingly multi-dimensional and complex, meaning that some people have relatives, friends, or others that are touched by disasters. That touches on our migrant population, but that's beyond mm -hmm. people who are first-generation migrants, could include second-generation or third or higher, who might have linkages with causes around the world. And then the last factor is what we talked about uh, prior to, I think, when you stepped out, the role that our leaders are playing nationally and internationally. I mentioned the role of uh, Bill and Melinda Gates in raising the visibility of the challenges facing the world's poorest uh, populations, whether it's malaria or water and sanitation. We have various sectors that are coming together, corporations, uh, private philanthropists, but also our civic and national leaders to raise the visibility of many of these international issues. And all of those factors combined, I think, help explain why international giving continues to be one of those fastest growing subsectors within the American charitable landscape. So we have seen a lot of um, private fortunes through the internet companies, social media companies, kind of the whole, uh, that, that whole set of world where you create a, uh, an app and six months later you're a multimillionaire. Yes. It's a beautiful world. I haven't been part of it myself. Yes. Yes, the tech sector is also a, uh, playing a role here. We have platforms like GoFundMe, Kiva, um, all global giving that make it much easier for us to support causes around the world. And certainly we have the rise in these national, international, and humanitarian uh, crises. I mentioned that um, from our household data, the philanthropy panel study that looks at American families over time, about 10,000 families, we know that one out of 10 Americans gives to an international organization. And that fraction has increased rapidly since 2000. Well, that was part of my question is you find ordinary individuals uh, kind of working in America giving more, or is it mostly driven by newly affluent individuals who are able to give tens of millions of dollars, if, if you will? So we do see a mix of both. Certainly the philanthropy panel study tells us the story of everyday Americans. And in that group, we are seeing a rise in international giving. Uh, in the broader landscape, when we look at just those top givers, the million dollar and above gifts, there we also see a growth in gifts that are going to international causes. And health is one of the largest recipient areas. And so I think it, it makes sense when you put this picture together to say that Americans are increasingly reaching out to various parts of the world to make a difference. Can I just also add on this point about uh, increase in American giving? There's a couple factors here. Uh, one, it, there's some generational points. Um, more and more Americans um, of the millennial generation are already thinking in a, in a globally-minded manner, and they're connected. So with the advent of technology and the Internet, um, we're seeing a, a generation that is uh, 
really born into a, a life that is globally aware. Um, secondly, millennials are also, a uh, higher percentage of millennials are multiracial or come from um, at least one parent that is of an immigrant background. And so these are also households that have a connection around the world. Um, and lastly, this, this point on first and second generationers, when we talk about migrants or diasporas, it's not necessarily just the first immigrants. It's not the immigrant themselves. It's the children who are oftentimes more educated, um, more exposed, being able to navigate the, the multiple uh, environments, and they're also looking at how to leverage their own um, connection to the country. So second generation Indian Americans are giving at an incredible rate um, to the country, and as a result, these countries are starting to create incentives to attract younger Americans who are children of immigrants and beyond. So we need to really look at the generational demographic and the diversity within that and the linkages they already have around the world. So I'm going to just make one point here going back to the pilots before I turn this back over to the chair. And, and Mr. Worthington, you may have a follow-up point, but you can perhaps wait until I, it's my opportunity again. But this is the language that we got into the actual law in FY16. It says, in carrying out the PVS pilot program required by subsection E, the Department of state and USAID are directed to include a direct vetting option that does not require prime awardees to collect, verify, or submit sub-awardee data. The Department of State and USAID should ensure that all individuals vetted through such pilot are able to obtain information on how data is used by the U.S. government. So I thought we had addressed this issue, but it's sounding like from your responses that perhaps the language that we included in law may not have been fully implemented. We are, we are not seeing a clear and consistent application of a vetting system by AID uh, in, in alignment with your language. We're just discussing the timeline here. As so often happens, um, uh, we get uh, double, triple, sometimes quadruple booked up here, and I, I regret uh, uh, we have some pressing matters. Uh, but I, I would like to... Um, uh, pose a question to Ms. Aria that uh, I, I have been intending to communicate to you. So um, I'd like to follow up on, on diaspora communities and, and uh, your thoughts on expatriates and how they might serve as effective diplomats uh, to promulgate our values and advance U.S. interests. And I actually have some policy ideas uh, that might facilitate that if, in fact, they are effective ambassadors uh, uh, based on, um, if not consensus opinion, some of the strong opinions of scholars. But um, yesterday, more immediately, UNICEF put out a press release saying that the projected number of severely malnourished children in Somalia is shot up by 50% since the beginning of the year to 1.4 million children including 275,000 who have or will suffer life-threatening, severe acute malnutrition in 2017. Miseria, can you provide any additional details on the situation there? And um, before you do, uh, I'll just say I understand that UNICEF has treated over 56,000 severely malnourished children this year there, uh, yet we know more can be done. According to the press release, uh, UNICEF has received 78.7 million of its 148 million appeal, so there's a 47% gap in funding. 
And it's also my understanding from UNICEF this morning that if the funding gap is filled, UNICEF could reach up to 1 million additional children in Somalia with life-saving interventions, measles vaccination, access to safe water, sanitation and hygiene, treatment of cholera cases, and prevention and treatment of nutrition services. So um, if you can provide any additional details and raise the profile of this as I uh, apologize for leaving and, and uh, turn the reins over to Mr. Merkley, I, I'd be most appreciative. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Young. Um, the situation in Somalia is nearly catastrophic. Uh, a, a drought that is quickly worsening into an impending famine is threatening the lives of millions. There are currently 6.2 million people facing acute food insecurity in Somalia, including 3.7 million children. Um, the number of people in need of water and sanitation will reach 4.5 million people uh, by this month, actually. Um, if the funding gap is closed, UNICEF could reach up to 1 million additional children with these interventions. We learned in 2011 around the famine that struck Somalia that it, the children, up to 260,000 children died from preventable reasons such as diarrhea and measles. And it's at this stage when we are raising the alarm that uh, the most effective response that we can provide as an national community is in the preventable measures. It's much more cost-effective. It ensures that children can not only survive through this uh, crisis, but possibly thrive. Um, and so what we see now is there are over 275,000 children who have or will suffer life-threatening severe acute malnutrition in 2017. We also know that this emergency isn't just about the immediate food assistance that's needed and the interventions. It's also about the consequences of a prolonged drought and uh, worsening crisis. This includes massive displacement. We're already seeing from January and February 3,700 3,770 people have arrived in Ethiopia. 75% um, of them are malnourished children. And these are, uh, these are people who are not only suffering the, the crisis it, as it exists inside Somalia, but they're walking and journeying through thousands of miles to these uh, camps that are quickly growing. So we're also recognizing this as a regional crisis. And for that reason, we're, we're urging uh, the international community to respond for, on behalf of the 80 million people across all these countries, uh, including in Somalia. And remember, in South Sudan, famine has been declared. And for where famine is existing, that's where uh, the, the, the greatest uh, needs are provided. Um, we, we know that also another prolonged drought of consequence of drought and famine. It's also just a child's uh, access to learn and education and have the chance at a thriving life afterwards. Um, so UNICEF has already been able to provide uh, not only one million people with temporary access to safe water and sanitation, we've reached 380,000 children and women with life-saving health services, including emergency vaccinations. Um, but we've also been able to provide 190 schools, reaching 20,000 children with safe drinking water, learning spaces, which reached 40,000 children, and we've been able to provide emergency cash grants for children who are at the highest risk of dropping out. So this, this emergency, in its, in its worst case, is about uh, making sure that, that children and uh, their communities can survive, uh, but we're also looking at the long-term effects of what this drought and famine could lead to. Thank you, Senator Merkley. Uh, I would just add that we have uh, the largest uh, number of refugees and internally displaced people in the world right now since World War II, 165 million. Uh, that number is going to increase because of food insecurity and because of famines. People move. Um, there's large movements of population. So this is not just a humanitarian emergency. 
in the region, it's going to have all sorts of implications, not just in the Horn of Africa, but also in the Middle East and Europe as well. Yes, Mr. Worthington. I was in a, a meeting last week in, in Geneva with the heads of the different UN agencies uh, focusing on, on this response. The first, this is again a disaster happening in four places, is northeast Nigeria, it's Yemen, it's Somalia, and it's South Sudan. Um, there is severe uh, conditions just before drought in all four places, and we may be looking at actually uh, drought before famine. We see, may be looking actually at, at famine in Nigeria, though the government hasn't declared that. In all four cases, conflict is the main driver behind this. We know how to deal with situations of drought. The situations of drought and conflict are critical. There's some, again, 20 million people at risk in these countries. The situation is only going to get worse. Depending how the Saudis behave in Yemen in terms of the port and the ability to get resources into the port, another 7 million people could be at risk there. Um, at this point, it was again uh, by the UN uh, um, coordinator of humanitarian affairs uh, noted that about 70% of the response on the ground are NGOs. We have U.S. NGOs operating in areas near Boko Haram in uh, northeastern Nigeria, but our biggest challenge uh, is access. Uh, in the past uh, uh, period of time, some 62 uh, humanitarian workers have been killed trying to gain access in response uh, to this humanitarian catastrophe. Obviously, it's, it's a huge uh, uh, challenge, and, and I listen to the millions here, millions there numbers, and uh, this is why we pressed for additional assistance to be in the bill that we just will be passing tomorrow, I, I anticipate, for the last five months of this fiscal year. I'm not sure the exact amount of money that was an additional dedic was additionally dedicated to the uh, these four uh, nations, um, 990 million, so almost a billion dollars. The point that several of you have made is that uh, access is is critical, and uh, there is I know that there is a, uh, uh, a, a an amendment or a bill being circulated that basically makes aid, military aid to Saudi Arabia contingent upon uh, Saudi Arabia cooperating to open the ports in Yemen, be able to facilitate the, the passage of uh, emergency aid. So how much of the issue is the amount of resources and is what the U.S. is doing with this additional $990 million a fair uh, participation, or should we be doing more, or should we be calling on the rest of the world to do more? And how much is it really more a problem of logistics, the chaos of war, um, folks intercepting the, the aid, appropriating it, reselling it, uh, making sure it doesn't get to the enemy, if you will, whoever they are fighting against, all of that uh, uh, chaotic battlefield challenge? So perhaps to... I, uh, Four countries, four different short answers. Um, in Somalia, uh, more resources uh, is the primary impediment. Uh, there's significant local capacity uh, to address this, uh, and programs can be significantly expanded. In South Sudan, uh, there are parts of the country where there is simply a total uh, acting of impunity and disregard of international humanitarian law. 
uh, by both sides, both the government of South Sudan uh, and the rebels. Uh, and in that case, uh, the primary uh, barrier uh, in, in certain areas of Sudan is, is access. Uh, in uh, northeastern uh, Nigeria, uh, there are significant areas of access, but in many ways it's the uh, Nigerian military uh, forbidding access to humanitarian actors in certain areas, uh, so you there also have a uh, political challenge. Uh, in Yemen, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, NGOs are functioning, but it's the flow of resources getting through the port uh, that uh, and the at times uh, indiscriminate bombing uh, targeting uh, humanitarian uh, that end up targeting humanitarian convoys. Uh, so there, uh, it is also uh, a combination of resources and access. Quite challenging, and I think your your short answers uh, reflect the complexity of of the situation on the ground in different locations and the combination of uh, uh, politics, greed. Warfare all mixing to, uh, t together. So uh, thank you all for your, your expertise. We're going to adjourn the committee unless anyone has a final comment that they, they would like to make. Was that a nod, yes, a final comment, or a nod, yes, you're done? I do want to uh, enter for the, the record a folder of documents. Uh, so with unanimous consent, I'd like to have this folder of documents provided to me by Senator Young's staff. Uh, included in the record. Is there an objection? Hearing none. <laughs> they are included. And I, I thank you all for the work you're doing in international economic development. Uh, earlier, the description was of folks who are working in different types of fields. And I was in the international economic development field. I, I, that's what I studied as an undergraduate and as a graduate student. Uh, had a chance to be in India, to live in West Africa, to, to work uh, on a number of village projects. And I thought I was going to spend my life working overseas in these types of projects, dealing with the type of issues that you've been talking about. But as often happens in life, I uh, took a, a, a turn and, and uh, a door opened to work on a strategic nuclear policy at a time we were worried about the world being blown up by nuclear weapons. And so I... So I didn't end up in the world that you all inhabit, but I greatly, greatly appreciate the work that you all are doing and to help us understand how the United States can be the best possible partner with the rest of the world in addressing these complex and difficult and important issues, economic development on the one hand, humanitarian uh, support uh, in crises as well. So with that, I'll... Okay, so we're going to keep the record for the committee open for 48 hours for members of the committee to uh, address, uh, submit additional questions for the witnesses or for all, anything else you all would like to add to the record. Thank you. Adjourned. <laughs>